Welcome to the fifth episode of the Ryan Reef podcast. I talked to Brandon Ferdig, who's built up a social media following through the years, but is primarily a YouTuber. He started out making videos about his travels around the world and has covered various topics through the years, but has recently been focusing on homelessness, which is how I first encountered his work. I wanted to talk to him about the issue because he's spent so much time on the ground confronting things face on. I hope you listen to the whole episode, but if you're short in time, I recommend listening to the last 20 minutes where he highlights some of the complexities of the issue and explains what he thinks is the best solution to the problem. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for joining me today. I um, stumbled upon you through your YouTube channel, The Periphery, so maybe you could just kind of describe what what that is. It is a human interest story uh, channel. Um, it has mostly featured interviews with people from all over. Um, it sometimes covers topics, but I try to keep it more focused on the people's stories. Um, and there, there are stories that are often the, on the periphery. So like peripheral vision, right? It's off to the side and they're ones that we might not regularly see or hear. So, um, and I, I just, I find those off the beaten path kind of stories, maybe the most interesting. And in time, I've found them to be the most, um, maybe powerful. Although the ordinary is also very powerful. And I actually wouldn't mind doing a series of stories about the ordinary, like a, a day in the life of a cashier at Walmart or something like that. My mom used to work at a Walmart or she still does, but now she's in the pharmacy. But like she talked about the shoplifting and what, what people buy. And I, I kind of dig those everyday kind of little nuggets too. But but my my um, my series is like, um, I did a story or I, I I did a long, I spent the evening actually with a family of Mennonites in Montana. So that was one of my more popular videos. I interviewed some marijuana farmers, some just independent marijuana farmers out in Oregon. And uh, where I really got some traction was with a couple of interviews I did when I was traveling the U.S. South. And one gentleman in particular, his name is Bill Jones, <clears throat> and he calls himself a redneck. So he was Bill Jones, the Arkansas redneck, or we call him Arkansas Bill. And I think what, what, what made people like him so much was um, the fact that he was both surprising and so relatable. And it's like, how can you be both of those things? Um, either you're, you know, catching people by surprise with what you're saying, how you're living your life, or you understand where he's coming from. I mean, how could you be both? Um, but I guess it was an interesting combination of of people liking this character because you know he was he looked like a character from a movie or something he had all the stereotypes and the the the, the accent and the environment in which he lived it was there was a lot of clutter in his yard and he had an old trailer in the back and a lot of dogs and um what actually made me stop to photograph his place because it was just an impromptu interview was the fact that it was the first property in the u.s south that had the confederate flag flying and i hadn't seen that um I don't think maybe I had when I was a kid somewhere, but I don't, I don't remember. But the, the first time I really saw it was at his place in Arkansas. So I stopped and photographed it. Now he came and I wondered, Oh, is he going to be mad that I'm photographing his place? But he was very open to it. And then he was open to answering some questions and then he was open to being recorded. So I, um, 
I hit record on my, it was back then a little Sony point and shoot and just held it at my chest. And I just started talking to him and then we forgot the camera was even there. And we had a conversation about his life, about his family, about his thoughts on the country. And then the, the, the video went, went viral on YouTube. And I've since gone back for four more videos with Bill over the years. This first one was 2016, summer of 2016. Um, and we've sort of followed him through life. He's, he's in his sixties. I think back then he was probably 59 and now he's like 64, 65. No, that doesn't quite add up with math, does it? Maybe back then he was like 57, 58. Um, but yeah, he's sort of the, the main character on my channel. Um, whereas lately the main subject has actually been homelessness. And I've done a documentary and now I'm in the middle of a series about people living on the streets. And I just focus all my time where I live and that's in the Twin Cities, Minnesota, <clears throat> and specifically Minneapolis. I've gone into St. Paul and some suburban stuff, but you, there's, there's, there's enough right there, right in Minneapolis is actually, that's where most of it is. So I, I've gotten to know people there and followed them along with their lives, their struggles, their hopes to get out to a better life. And, um, yeah, I've documented it on my channel. Yeah, I there's a bunch of things I, I want to jump into here with everything you've just said. Um, you know, I was looking through some of your your videos, and you know, you've been doing this for a while, and you know, some of your first videos are um, you in China, and then you can kind of see how your channel has evolved over time. So I was just wondering how, sort of, when you started doing this what did you think it was going to be and what did it turn into? And then, you know, you, and again, like there's so many different topics, you know, you, you talk about, you know, genetic engineering, you, you're, you know, you're focusing on homeless issues at the moment and tons of other stuff, you know, it's, you, you talk to a hunter and all these other things. Um, so just kind of like, how has that journey been? And, and, um, you know, what are, what have been some of the, the ups and downs? Well, you might understand this as a as a um, a creator yourself, and as a someone who interviews people. There's a there's a double edged sword of being interested in a lot of things, and my my um, the channel has evolved just with my interests. So that's not I don't think shocking to hear. But um, one one problem has been that. Uh, I, I like a lot of things, so I have had hard. I've had a hard time focusing on any one thing. You mentioned, um, like the genetic engineering one. Well, I, I do have a big interest in in tech and how it shapes society, and um, whether it's genetic engineering, whether it's three D printing, whether it's just how the internet makes it hard to curb gambling and prostitution, whether it's cryptocurrencies and monetary policy and uh, you, you had Nick on earlier from Prospera, and I've I've gone down there a couple of times. I'm interested in that as a sort of societal governance experiment. Um, but that's all kind of I don't know if this if this mode of thinking of the brain is outdated, but left brain, right brain, and I've gotten a little bit away from the left brain thought pieces um, and analysis side of things, like you mentioned the genetic engineering, and I've tried to stay closer to the fire with the stories, the, the, the more heartfelt stuff. And that's where like, you know, even then it can get all over the place. Like I did interview my grandpa who shot a caribou and then a grizzly bear came and took this caribou from him or one of the two that was shot. And then they had to like dress the one caribou while the other 
was being eaten by the bear about 50 yards away. So uh, that was a real Joe Rogan-esque kind of story. Um, but it was my grandpa. So that was that was really cool to hear um, and get on camera now forever. He passed away actually like three years ago. So that's, that's obviously, you know, very uh, near and dear for our family. Um, but I guess to, I'll try to quickly answer that question. I, I, I traveled quite a bit and I did videos about that, like any good, uh, you know, uh, fledgling YouTuber does, or, or even back then, you know, there wasn't a ton of, there wasn't as many YouTubers. Those, those China videos are from 2010, 2011. So this is a ways back. Um, and I went from sort of being a travel guy to, um, to one where I was getting a little bit more involved in the stories. And then when I came back home, I was capturing stories here of people that I, that I met and it was mostly interview formatted. It wasn't so much like I'm doing a, a, uh, a thought piece, like, like frontline on a, on an issue or like a 60 minute story where there's a lot of editing and a lot of B roll and a lot of different things like that. It was mostly just the interview. Um, but I did that around the U S and then it did go a little more topical rather than just the interview. When I saw the homeless issue out in Portland and Seattle and Vancouver, I did sort of a West coast tour, um, North Pacific Northwest tour. And when I saw the issue of homelessness, I thought, you know what, I, I'd like to talk about that as, as an issue, make it a little bit left brain and, and do a little bit of analysis while sticking with the human interest side of things. And, and then about a year later, a large encampment sprouted up here in Minneapolis and it was almost all native American. It was called the wall of forgotten natives and it made up national news because it, it became so, so large, so sudden the city gave it like its permission to be there where a city, the city would before used to just try to shut them down. And that's what they still do now, by, by the way, they've changed their policy. But for that one, for that summer and maybe two, like the George Floyd summer, a couple of summers ago, they also gave some tent, uh, some encampments like the, the, the permission to be there. But that was the first one and it grew to like 150 tents, which in our city was huge, um, up to 300 people. And, um, and so I started going there and capturing the stories and I was able to go there from August to December, the, the December is when it was eventually shut down when it just got too cold and they finally built a temporary shelter for the people there. And I just followed people that were living in that camp for four months while also following the story of the camp itself. So it made for a pretty decent documentary. It got in a couple of film fests. I shot it with my phone, um, but that was that was adequate. And heck, it was maybe even appropriate given the given the uh, the setting. And uh, I find a phone is really good for interviews like that because it's just the least invasive. You don't want a big camera in a tent or something. Yeah, I, um, I don't I, know. Does that does that answer your question? I kind of went. No, no, that was that was great. Um, you know, on the sort of like practical side. You know, I, I really like your sort of style, you know, sometimes you're dealing with very sort of emotional situations, very heavy topics. I remember I was watching the, the video with Carrie and then the, the follow up a number of years later. And, you know, she comments how she's still using drugs and, you know, there was no, no judgment on your part. And it seems like there's, you know, from watching your, your videos, there seems to never be sort of like any kind of stigma or anything. You're just, you're just there and you're trying to listen to people and you're trying to see if there is something that you can do to help. 
Um, and I just find it a, a really interesting um, method. And I was just wondering, you know, I feel like it, it could be very difficult at times, you know, maybe there are times where you do want to intervene a little bit and say like, well, Hey, maybe you shouldn't be doing this thing or something. Like, how do you, how do you weigh that? Um, it seems like you're sort of have like this monk like ability to not sort of, um, overstep. Does it, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's, 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 I've, I've been asked a similar kind of question before, like, doesn't that just really weigh you down or doesn't it intimidate you? And, and yes, and all those, everything you mentioned and that I've been asked has, there's truth to all that. I, I, I don't, I guess only in hindsight, I've realized I've had a knack for this. And, um, like, I remember talking to my friend's grandma when we were in high school and she, she, uh, she had a picture of her late husband and uh like on the in the kitchen or something and i just asked her uh, her name is marlene i said marlene like you were married with him for like 40 years she's like yeah and that was obviously way longer than i'd even been alive and i just i think i had a girlfriend at the time for like six months and i thought wow this is i can't imagine 80 times that length you know um and so I asked her like, that must, and he had been, he had been passed, I think for nine years at that time or something, or some, some amount, uh, some years. And I just asked about the adjustment, like, you know, suddenly having no one in your bed at night, not having someone there. And I just asked her about that adjustment and she got emotional and, and, and shared a little bit about it. And I, 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 I later said that I had this conversation with actually with my girlfriend at the time. And she was, she was sort of thinking like, why'd you ask her that? That wasn't appropriate. That wasn't nice. But I was, um, so in, so in hindsight, I realized I've, I've always had a, a, a connection to that humanity, like the most human parts of us, I find the most beautiful. Um, is I guess they're the most real. They're the most right because there's all kinds of ways we express ourselves as humans, right? There's we can go to a sporting event, we can go out partying, we can have a good day at work. But I find the most human, right, have to do with relationships or have to do with just even taking a walk out in the woods by yourself, um, where you really get a feel for life, the, the life experience. Um, And I found nothing more profound at the time than, and it was profound to me, especially because it was so new. I hadn't really thought about it as a teenager, but, but to, but to have, you know, have been married for so long and then not suddenly your, your, your spouse is gone and, and all, you know, all those uh, adult issues. Um, but I was, I was touched by the significance of that, even though I didn't understand it. Maybe that's why I was, well, that's why I was curious. Um, so anyway, why I like to interview people is because I get to learn about their humanness or humanity. I don't know how you might want to say that. Um, and in the case of people who are on the street, they are some of the most connected people to their humanness. Um, and I think, and I, I kind of just realized this actually, I've, you know, how sometimes you're into something and you don't really even know why. And then you, you, you realize, you know, this is why I like it. It's, it's because I really like, like maybe you're really into fishing and then it takes you a couple of years to realize, you know, why I like going fishing so much 
because like maybe it's a challenge maybe it's trying to like discover the different species of fish or, or just trying to figure out the right combination of bait and time of day and water temperature and season and the, um or maybe you realize you just love being out on the water and 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 the quiet and then you know in minnesota we have a lot of loons so like the loon crying out and um but for me i think i'm 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 really really struck by the um by how connected they are to their humanness um and in some ways they're very disconnected because they're under the influence and they're they're hooked um and they're evasive and they're they're avoiding responsibility and so in some ways they're very but in other ways they're they're very very connected and and those are very powerful moments for me to capture and i i actually just did on a on an episode of our series where i was struck by a guy who was threatened his life was threatened and i said you know that's that's incredible like your, your life was under threat and he's like my life's been threatened dozens of times and he just said it so plainly and not braggadocious not like oh that's nothing you know he was there was no ego that was like you know you know how people will kind of you ego gets in the way it, it, it provides some kind of armor or or um uh, some sort of fake podium that the people step on to like not be grounded and he was totally grounded when he said that he looked, he didn't even look at me in the eye he wasn't trying to be impactful he wasn't trying to like look son you know it was just him looking off in the distance and reflecting on his life and saying I, my life's been threatened dozens of times and i was just like holy cow um so 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 those are the moments that i that i really and moved by and then i did want to just quickly address the issue of like how how to like not be so weighed down when things get so powerful and that's that's a tough question to answer um one i'm sober so i've seen addiction i've, I've suffered with it in my early 20s so i've been in some pretty rough places not homeless but i've been in places where people are using hard drugs i've i've, I've seen you know, I was up all night uh, on occasion doing doing uh, illegal substances myself. And so I've seen that side of addiction so I can relate to it. So I'm not that scared of seeing it. Um, and then, um, I don't know, sometimes I, sometimes the journalist in me does come out. And, and then it's a little more probing and, and discovery process than it is a connection process. So like if you're... You know, if, if you're connecting with someone and you're feeling super like intense with that connection because you're talking about the death of a loved one or something, then you might want to really steer clear. But if you're probing for a, a, a like the root of someone's pain and, and the root of like, why are you out living outside in a tent? Well, then you might want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, but you have to obviously be super careful. Um, so there is that journalist side of me which sometimes takes over, which I have to learn to you know, govern and, and not be, be, uh, not lead the way inappropriately. Sometimes don't ask questions that are insensitive. Um, and then lastly, I'll say, sometimes I do put the camera down. So there was a, a guy in a recent episode of our series that, um, he started talking about his dead child. I think he had a stillborn is what it was. And he was so busted up about it. And, um, I put the camera down and I just said, look, um, you know, if you want to talk about it, I'm here to talk about it. Um, 
but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna record this. And it actually gave me the idea uh, that we're we're kind of mulling over the idea of which is um, starting a kind of a support group, perhaps. Like we're not gonna bring the camera in. We're not gonna. This isn't about the story and, and sharing it with others. This is about you getting your pain out. This is about you finding support. Because what I found in this issue of homelessness, if you do want to get analytical with me and talk about this issue, we could do that too. Um, is that these are people who are really in pain. Like they've got some, they've got deep pain. Um, and I, I don't see a solution. You can, you can, you can do a lot of things to try to solve it. I think on the surface, you know, provide housing across the board or, uh, do a more uh, heavy law enforcement and kick them out. And you can do those things that are going to kind of put a bandaid on it. But until you heal, they're either going to, one, uh, find a new tent city if uh, if you just kick them out. Or two, if you give them housing, they'll leave the housing and go back out on the street. And I've seen that. Um, so ni neither of those are, are, are going to solve this. And I don't, I don't think either side necessarily, if you want to say it's two sides, would we'll, we'll say either is a, is a long-term solution. Um, I just think we need to balance the two when it comes to our political approach to it. But I, I think long term, you have to deal with that. You have to deal with that pain. Uh, anyway, that, that's that's talking a little bit too much about that. And I I think I may have been a bad uh, uh, interviewer by interrupting you a, a moment ago. So no, no, not not <laughs> at ahead. all. That was that was great. I mean, you covered some some heavy topics there. Y you know, another thing that I like about your channel is for lack of sort of a better term, you sometimes kind of get these layers because you'll do a piece, you know, like you, you had your piece um, where you were going through Skid Row in Los Angeles. And so there's this sort of the, the main video where you're actually there, but then you have your kind of preview where you're talking about what you did. And I really like that aspect of when you're referencing back or, or talking about what you're doing because it allows a sort of like another angle um, and then this also goes a bit deeper because, you know, it's the internet. So then you get people commenting and then throughout your videos and throughout the years and time, you get these sort of connections where people will be like, Hey, that that's a family member. Or, you know, I was looking at comments yeah. of, um, you know, people that aren't from the United States. Uh, one that stuck out to me, I, I think, um, it was something along the lines of like, Oh, we only know Disney and, you know, Hollywood. So thanks for, for sort of showing this and and it is you know this is something that i wanted to talk to you about is um are you familiar with mr beast the youtuber yeah oh, okay yeah. so yeah. you know there's i'll just be put my opinion out there to be frank but um you know i think he's done a lot of really great things for a lot of people which is amazing so you can't bash him for that i think that's absolutely wonderful but there's something that strikes me as a bit, um, I don't know exactly, unsettling. I'm not sure the right term exactly, but it's sort of like you look at his channel and it's like this sort of like cartoonishness. And I know exactly why he's doing this. It's because of the algorithm. It's because that's what people click on. So again, it's like yeah. it's, it's not a one-way thing. It's, it's a complicated interaction. So as you've been doing this over the years, sort of like how do you think of you know, the algorithm, so to speak. And then again, like, I know now I'm going off the rails here, but it's like, 
there's YouTube, there's TikTok, there's Twitter, there's all, you know, all these things. Like, again, I know it's a, a lot to sort of jump into, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, just like it's been a challenge for me to focus on a niche. Like I, I, I envy the, the YouTubers and the other creators who have a specific like I am the real estate guy. And even in that, he might be the real estate guy that does, um, I don't know, rural properties or, or lake homes or cabin, you know, like you, I envy people who find their niche and they're just, they swing for the fences with it. Like I, I'm like, oh, man, you're, you're, you're lucky. You really know what you're, you're doing and you wake up and you feel that. And that's you. I, I've been a little too, um, too, uh, I don't know, maybe unfocused. And, and so that plays into that same tendency plays into the different uh, social media. And it is hard because you have to find your channel. And so I also envy those who are like, no, I'm posting about like, there's this one guy on LinkedIn, he's getting a lot of engagement posting about web three, crypto, blockchain stuff, metaverse stuff, uh, probably even AI now. Maybe so. Here he goes. Maybe he's getting a little too. He's got to reel it in. Um, what was that? I, I just can't. Who who isn't talking about AI? Oh, now. it's um, it's uh, yeah. He he's not even a real person. It's an AI guy. No. Um, what is his name? If if it still shows it, I think it's Mark Bauman. I think his name is Mark Bauman but he's getting a ton of engagement and I don't see him on other social media. I'm not saying he's not on other social media, but I don't, I don't think he has the issue of spreading himself to like, I don't, you know, I I'm guessing he doesn't have a Facebook page, a TikTok channel, a YouTube channel, a big Twitter presence an Instagram presence, uh, you know, like you, you, you find your audience. And honestly, I think what, I think the best way to do it, I'm guessing if you're a, uh, just a strategist would be to, get good on one platform, like get big on one platform, like Mr. Beast, he was a YouTuber, period. Well, now he's everywhere, but that's because he can, now he's somebody. And when he jumps on Twitter, it's like, oh, hey, it's Mr. Beast. We know who that is. Um, I've done the opposite and that hasn't been, I don't think good for my, my, my brand's growth, the periphery, right? So I try to be on Twitter. I try to be on a, a little bit on everything. Um, I've stopped trying to do some social media more than others because it's just obviously I'm a YouTuber. Okay. That's, that's my, that's my thing. But you know what? I'll get way more views on TikTok right now. I just started doing TikTok like last fall and I didn't think I would touch TikTok because I just, I'm not a huge fan of the content. Um, and it's not my generation anymore. I'm 41. So I felt like I don't quite get it. Um, I'm not as quick with like the tech and like the different bells and whistles. And so I just, you know, and I had my thing. Um, and perhaps most of all, I can get over, I can do the learning curve. I can whatever, but, um, I can get used to a, a, a format that's, you know, portrait instead of landscape. Uh, but I didn't think the content would do well because it's too heavy, right? TikTok is so light and fun and. You know, we're going to make you look like a dog and we're going to these filters and, you know, what food are you? And then they'll have like food spiraling about, you know, like going through a rotation of different foods. Like, oh, I'm a cupcake today. Okay. Um, 
And then it's like, oh, it's like, so if you watch that video and then you flip to the next one and then there's like me interviewing a, a junkie on the street, right? Or someone who's been hooked on fentanyl or something like, holy cow, that's just going to be a real buzzkill. People don't want to see that, but they, they actually, they actually do. Um, and um, so I'll get thousands of views on a, on a TikTok, whereas on YouTube, it's, it's harder to get those thousands of views. You have to be more. I don't know, more something, but TikTok is easier. It's just an easier viral. People are just going through their their videos so fast that it's easier to get lots of views. It's easier to go viral. Um, so I have spent time on TikTok as a way to sort of preview the videos that I put out on YouTube. Um, but you find your met, you know, you find your method. You would do the same thing with your podcast. Like, oh, where am I going to promote this thing? Is it is it more business on LinkedIn? Is it going to be a YouTube ad? Is it going to be a Facebook ad? You know, whatever. Um, and so that, that, that sort of gets to the point of how to, um, I mean, those are just some thoughts on how I've approached the different social media, um, to get to the, the Mr. Beast thing, you know, he is a content, he, he is a, what's going to get the most views. What's going to get the most views. Like that's his been, that's been his MO. I've, I've, I listened to his interview on Joe Rogan and I've, there was a piece about him. What's going to get the most views? And that was always his thing. He was just obsessed with what's going to get the most views. And you know what his first viral video was? I'm not. It was, I'm going to count to 100,000. <laughs> yeah. And he counted to 100,000 on camera. And it took him several hours and he just did it. He counted to 100. I think he counted to 100,000. I think that's what it was. You know, just think about it, going through all the numbers. You're in the fifty thousands. You're in the sixty thousands. You're you're saying every friggin' number. It's it's nuts. But that video went viral, and he's like, ah, okay, this is onto something. So he's a he's all about. He's like a business person, really, for YouTube. Like, if you're a business person, what's going to get the most people? And you're you're worried purely about the bottom line. You might not even be into the industry. Like, I don't even care about food, but I just want to build restaurants because I just I just love the strategy of of it. Although that that probably wouldn't happen. You better lo love what you do or lo love the uh, industry that you're in. But he, he's, he's just all about what, what's going to get the most views and it's worked so spectacularly well for him that it's allowed him to be super generous with his money. And, um, and I could use a lot more of Mr. Beast in my channel, frankly, like I, I, I worry more. Like, what, what am I like? I'll look outside and say, Hey, yeah, I'm going to do a story about that. But I don't put near enough thought into, do people want to see that? And what's the best thumbnail for that, right? And what's the best way to go? You know, he's he's always strategizing how to how to do that and growing, and it's it's admirable to see. Um, I have a lot to learn there. There was, oh yeah, you talked about the the impact of the of the videos, and I appreciate the feedback actually about the voiceover because that's something I've heard before. Um, but in a sort of a personal admission that, you know, that's, that's something I've thought about, but have been sometimes hesitant to do because it's like, Oh, do the people want to hear from me? Like, isn't this story about the person I'm interviewing and a, a, a popular, um, saying or approach in print journalism back when newspapers were all the, you know, were everything they would, they would, they never wanted journalists to put I, me, in the story. Like, I asked him 
Like, don't say that in, in your story. Say, you know, he was asked or he, or, or just put his answer without putting your question, right? Because it's not important, you know, when someone reads a story about Kirby Puckett being interviewed from the Star Tribune, uh, and I'm sorry, wh- where, where do you live, by the way? I'm in California, in okay. San Diego. Do you know who Kirby, you know who Kirby Puckett is? Uh, I, I don't. He was a he was a Minnesota Twins baseball player, um, so we'll make it more 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 uh, easier to relate to. Let's say someone interviews Prince. All right, Prince was a, obviously. A I got that. Player, so. <laughs> All right, so he might dig that wallpaper behind you. In fact, yeah. that that blanket or whatever behind. Um, let's say someone's interviewing Prince for the the largest newspaper in the state, this the Star Tribune, um, and. You're reading the you're you're there to read about Prince, right? You 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 don't care about which reporter the Star Tribune sent out to interview Prince. So if the story is like, I walked in and I saw, I saw uh, this on the wall, or I saw, you'd be like, we don't care about what you think or what you you know. This isn't about you. If 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 it was a so I think the saying in the newspaper business back then at least was, look. If, if you were supposed to be in the story, you'd be the subject, something like that. So, you know, leave out the, I asked him because then that, that, that puts you in this, you know, keep yourself out of the story as the reporter. That kind of thing. So I, I, I did intern with the St. Paul newspaper, the pioneer press several years ago. And I've written a couple pieces for the star tribune, which there's one of them right there about the Hmong people in Minnesota. Nice. And uh, this was a piece I did about inner city support groups. Um, so anyway, I've got a little bit of experience with the traditional media world. And um, and so I guess that's carried over into my videos is what I'm trying to say. So that, yeah, you might hear me ask questions, but I'm not going to inject my thoughts on the matter. And I've been hesitant to do that, maybe because of that old methodology, maybe because I don't think what I have to say is that important. Who knows? But um, I have had people tell me what you just did, which is, no, I really like that. You sort of tied it up at the end with your perspective on it. Um, And maybe video is just different than print, where people are going to wonder what you thought being there. Because you are involved. You're holding the camera. You're asking the questions. And then it is natural for people to ask, wow, were you scared being there? You were in the middle of Skid Row. Were you like, was your head on a swivel? All these sorts of things. Um, So I think I... I, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll do some, I'll, I'll do more voiceover actually in, in some videos coming up. Um, I, I think uh, a lot of people would like that and I can definitely appreciate the sort of um, methodology that you were just talking about. I think that maybe the, the big difference now is that there's just all these other avenues to sort of put content out. Whereas in the past, maybe, you know, you're a journalist and you only really get your yeah. voice heard through your your particular work but now it's like you can make your youtube video then you can kind of have like the commentary about it on another video and That's you right. can also post a little you know thought on your tiktok or maybe you write a little thing on the twitter and you know it's all kind of so then then again like the people who don't want to hear your commentary they don't have to um so I, that's true. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, I, I do feel as, you know, like when I was watching your videos, you know, you've done some pretty cool stuff and it's, 
like as I'm watching you through your travels or, you know, whatever your, your, your interview is or anything, you know, if I could watch enough of them, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, Hey, what does this guy actually think about certain things? And, and you definitely do get some of your thoughts on, on a lot of stuff. And, you know, some videos are more explicit than others. Um, so yeah, I just think we're rapidly moving towards this world where, you know, I, I, um, was having a conversation with someone about, um, sort of social capital versus fiat capital. Um, and what I mean by this is my, my example I like to talk about is airlines. So you could be a multimillionaire and you have a problem with your airline. You call them up, you might not get that problem fixed. Whereas if you have a good following on pretty much any social media platform and you post about the problem, it's probably going to get fixed. Um, and it just seems like that sort of, uh, arbitrage, if you will, is going to become more pronounced as time goes mm-hmm. on. And we're just entering this digital world. You know, I'm sure it's kind of frightening when you realize how much time you spend in front of a screen. Um, maybe in your case, it's a little bit different because you're actually out in the world a lot of the time and interacting with people. Um, but yeah, it's just, and again, you know, I, I recently got into podcasting basically because I just felt like, you know, for a long time, I didn't like, uh, you know, a lot of the tech companies, privacy issues, all this stuff, but it's just come, come to this point where it's like, you know, I had a, a, a tweet, it was, you know, some dumb tweet about boarding your flight and it went semi-viral or whatever, at least from my perspective. And it's just like, more people will know about my commentary about boarding flights than anything I've ever said in my life. And that's just the world we live in. Hmm. Because um, it was just a bite-sized thought that people appreciated. Yeah, I mean, someone commented like, oh, life hack, uh, board board the flight early no matter where your seat is and, you know, no one cares. And I said, no, the, the real life hack is boarding last so you don't have to wait on the on the plane. Um, you know, I actually saw that. I actually saw that and I agree with you. I, I've always <laughs> wondered why people line up. I've thought that at the airport before, like, yeah, why uh, why sit on the plane and why line up for that for that time? I find that. People, I find that, and then when you're in the plane, when the plane stops, everyone stands up. It's like, why is everyone standing right, up? Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna be standing for five, ten minutes waiting for the people in the front to get out and for them to hook the tube, tube, whatever that's called. The what is that called? It hooks up to the airplane. Oh yeah, there's gotta be a name for that. What that I don't know called. the tunnel. Yeah. Um. But um. Yeah, there's, there's, it's also really fascinating. I mean, if you're a sociologist nowadays, it's just, it's crazy. If you're a technologist, if you're a, heck, if you're just anyone interested in looking what's happening in the world, it's there's there's no, there's no shortage of material and, and it's easy to get cynical. My gosh. Um, but about the social capital, that's, that's true. Um, you know, a lot of these concepts I find that I do better at. Like, I don't know if you find this when you're interviewing people, but do you find that you you have the most insights when you're in the middle of an interview or when you sort of process it, in, it on your own later? I find that in reflection, I, I'm a little better at insights than 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 like in the actual. Um, or, or I'll watch an interview I did 
and then like things will hit me but at the time i don't know maybe because the environment was was chaotic or, or distracting or something um but whatever that's getting a little bit meta with this yeah, yeah i, I think this, there's this conversation. Uh, there's a german word for that um but basically the idea is like you're at a party and you know you're leaving you're walking down the stairs and then you come up with the witty comeback um there's a japanese i've heard there's a japanese phrase for that but these are all this is all based on things i've read on twitter and stuff so who knows <laughs> yeah, if that's true yeah who knows what i do know is that homer simpson in an episode of the simpsons said <laughs> so lisa said schadenfreude and uh he's like what's that and she explained it means taking joy in other people's suffering and uh and then he asked a question like, well, what's the word for like being upset about something or I, I can't remember. And she said, oh, sour grapes. <laughs> and it's like, oh, those Germans have a word for everything. <laughs> so uh, maybe they do have a word for that, too. Um, that's I think the Japanese word. I don't remember it. I, Whenever this happens, when I'm being when I'm talking to someone and I always want to pretend I'm on Joe Rogan and say, Jamie, can you look that up? We all, we, we all <laughs> yeah. need a Jamie in our lives. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't but, quite but have I the think, budget for that one yet. <laughs> I think the, uh, I think the, uh, the, the term in J Japanese has to do with when you're leaving a confrontation or a discussion or even a debate. Right. And maybe it's even more so geared toward an argument or a debate and, uh, someone insults you or, you know, then, then you leave and you're like, Oh, I should have said that. That would have been, That'd have been great. There's a Seinfeld about that. Now I'm getting all on this uh, sitcom tangent here. You know that Seinfeld where George, he, you know, he didn't have a comeback at the office. And then Kramer, you know, <laughs> Kramer gave him the idea, you know, just just tell the guy you slept with his wife. <laughs> you know, that'll yeah. get him. Yeah. That'll get so at the, at the end of the episode, George pulls that out mm -hmm. of his pocket like, well, I slept with your wife. <laughs> And then uh, a coworker leans over to George and is like, his wife's in a coma, dude. <laughs> and then like, yeah. you know, awkward. Yeah. Classic Seinfeld. Um, um, but anyway, we were, we were talking about. Um, yeah, we were uh, kind of jumping around. Um, but, you know, I, I was um, I wanted to talk to you about sort of how traveling has affected how you view the world. And, you know, I've. I've been fortunate enough to do a bit of traveling myself and, um, in particular Africa, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time in, in, in Uganda, Kampala mm -hmm. and, you know, there's things from my perspective that really stood out and there's just moments and stories and things that are difficult to articulate, but yeah, you know, I, I feel like sort of like your, your work that you're doing now focusing on the homeless issue, I feel like in a similar way that because you are sort of dealing with this in a, such a, you know, it's like you're there, you know, it's, again, like I've seen you did an interview with a guy who was uh, dining across the street um, on Skid Row and you're talking to him and he's just like, you know, I mean, I've spent time in LA too and I've gone by and it's just kind of like, it's a part of life and it's like, how do you even do it? But mm -hmm. again, maybe, um, to rephrase the question, but traveling, how, how has that sort of affected how you view the world? Uh, lately I've been struck by how it, 
experiences are, 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 are hard to encapsulate and try to articulate. And I used to try really hard. Um, I think in my twenties, I, I, I went from like being kind of a writer and a blogger to doing more video. Cause I found out oh, I can get so much more information in a video than I can in a writing it out. So why am I, you know, why, why not just, why not just capture it all in a video and then show it to people and, and I, I did a video about like going to the the Chinese wet market and there's a woman there like taking these catfish out of the bag that are still alive and just cracking them over the skull to knock them out. And there's a guy like snipping the heads off of frogs, big frogs that they sell at the market, the scissors and like snipping the, the head, the faces off. And then there was a cobra that just like lurched up out of this cage and like did this at me. Like, I'm like, holy cow. Um, there's ducks that are crammed into these cages, like 20 ducks in a little, in a little cage. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, so I, you, 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 you have an experience like that and it's like, what, what, you know, what do you do with that? Um, I've, in a way I've sort of stopped trying to capture it all because it's not, I don't know, it's not futile in its effort, but you also have to appreciate that. One, trying to convey the reality there through your through your mouth. If you tell a story through a video, if you share a story, it's never going to do it. It's never going to be the same. We're trying to get closer, right? Like we went from just let's write about it and then, let you know, let, let's talk about it. And now we can let's photograph it. Oh, I can show, you know, and oh, and now I can do a video. And of course, the next step will be VR. It's like, wow, I'm really here, you know, Um and that's great. Like this is this is cool. Maybe we'll have teleportation, and then we can just show up in an instant. That would be even better. Um, which, by the way, would be a technology that I'm curious the airline industry would, would, would you know, what they would do with that. Yeah. I'm guessing they would uh, put up all the fears, like, oh, we don't want to do that. That's bad for you. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, I, 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 so it's 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 hard to convey. And I've I'm I've told stories of travel, and I've I've I've, I've showed people's videos of my travel and it's we're, we're most interested in what we are in, right. When we're our, our, our immediacy, like that's where our, that's where our body is. That's where our, that's where our, our that's what our brains reacting to. That's where we are. And so I, I can't tell you how many times relatives would ask me about my travel. Um, and then as soon as I got into it a little bit, they just get bored. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a bad storyteller. I just think, they're really maybe not that interested or it's really hard to convey. Like I go up to, uh, I might go up to a friend or family when I'm back home and say, you know what? I was in this slum in, in Uganda, which is exactly where I was, by the way, in Kampala. I went to the largest slum. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Jamie, can you look that up? Um, Boise, Boise, B-W-A-I-S-E, I think. And there were actual slum tours in case people didn't know that who are listening to this, they, in some large cities, they'll give you a tour of the slum. It's become a tourist attraction, which seems crazy. It seems um, inhumane, but they, I guess as a, it depends how you approach it. Like if someone can, you know, if I, if I go there as a journalist and, and that's, that's the, that's the approach I took. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm someone who wants to share this on my blog. Um, I, I, I share it in my emails back. I had a, I had a, 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 
before Substack, I had it, but I had an email that I would just send out every week. So people are going to see this. Well, if someone can, if someone can walk me through, you know, escort me through this slum, that would be way better. That would be good for access. That would be good for answering my questions. Um, and then am I going to pay this person? Well, yeah, you know, I have no problem paying this person because like they've taken their day to do this and they're my guide. And, and so what, what am I doing? I'm taking a slum tour. Am I not? So, right. It, it, it you know, Private so if you, approach it from, if you approach it from that view, it's like, oh, I guess what you're doing is the same as if you were a normal tourist getting a slum tour. It's just that you're dressing it up or the context with which you're doing it is a little different. You're not there to like, Ooh, look at that, you know, but you're, um, but you know, ultimately it's, 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 it's similar. Um, in, in, in practice, someone is touring you through the slum. So anyway, I did that and I was just, of course I was blown away by everything I saw, just the, the, the conditions, the, the broken, like the, the things kids play with in a slum, right? Like they, they're playing with like a marble in the dirt. They, they had some bottle caps, I remember. And they're like trying to like put a marble in a bottle cap or something. And they're like, they have hardly any clothes on and they're all dirty and and it might smell and this whatever it's 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 a slum it's it's like it's a it's a slum in a developing world so it's 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 really about as as difficult as it gets to see um i think people in the us might be more familiar with the conditions in haiti and some of the slums there and it was perhaps like that um but you know i'm trying to convey that to people here and they just you know a lot of people it, it's hard like if you put them there they would they would be shocked, right? And and it would change their lives. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is travel is the, the the impact of travel is in those experiences. You you are forever changed. And I have appreciated more as I've gotten older the way travel impacts you just by you being there and actually putting the camera down less. But in times where it's you're, you're telling the story, I used to put the I think people do this probably early on too a lot. They have the camera up way too much, and you end up looking through. Yeah, you, know, you end up looking through your your lens at, at all the stuff around you because you just want to you want to capture it all. And I've done this to my detriment, where I'm even driving unsafe, where I have a rental car, and. Uh, I just want to capture it all. And it's like, dude, you're driving, like you're in a foreign country, you better pay attention. Um, so the impact is really mostly in, now you want to capture it, you want to have memories, you want to share stories, but you know, that, that memory of that, of that slum will always, you know, until I die, it'll, it'll be in my mind. And, and you know, it, it does what you would expect it to do. Like, let's say you went to an Indian reservation here in the U S and it was poor, you'd say, Oh my gosh, like, wow, this is, this is a part of the world I've never seen. It's people, people are living like this every day, or heck you go interview the Mennonites in Montana that, that I did, or the Amish in Pennsylvania. And you're like, wow, you know, they don't have any electricity here in this Amish village. And uh, it, it just, it takes you out of your own um, bubble, obviously, but, 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 but it, it, I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's a stabilizing component to it. Like if you look at it, like if you have a tripod 
and it's on really narrow. The legs are not spread out very far. It's just, it's tipsy, right? And so it's easier for you to have your own world like crash in front of you. If, if all you think is what you, you know, if you think your little world is all that there is, then, um, then suddenly you're, you're, you're fragile, right? Because anything that, that threatens that, like if, if the wrong store moves next door, Oh, Walmart is coming into our town. Oh no. And, and not that that's, I don't want to belittle that that could be serious, but, but, but you're going to be a lot less concerned about say something happening like that in your community. Like, Oh no, they're, they're changing the high school mascot or they're, um, they're not putting up a Christmas tree this year in, in town square or, um, I don't know, something, something like that. That's not going to really change a lot of people's lives significantly. But if you've got your legs and your tripod of your life, spread out, you know, acknowledging the different ways people live, then suddenly you're not so um, impacted by the little things in your in your bubble. Um, like, people are bothered by the the rising concerns in the US. And, and I, I, I think that they should be and in some ways, I think people are not concerned enough. And in some ways, um, I think when it sinks in, people are going to be too concerned. It's like, look, yes, the, the US is uh, and this this isn't just about presence present day geography and right and 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 this also has to do with another dimension of of breadth and that's time right so like if you if you look back in time and you gain some historical perspective suddenly you're not so shaken by what's happening in the present day like when when Trump got elected and when they were, sh when protesters were shutting down freeways and even when George Floyd happened right here in Minneapolis, which was crazy. But I, I talked to a couple old hippies, a couple old boomers. And they're like, we saw this in the sixties. Now, I don't know if they, if they're maybe their, their, their historical perspective has been a little tainted or if they want to exaggerate or if they, I don't know who knows how true that is that the 60s was like this but um the point is is that they they remembered another time in the country where things were crazy and they ended up living decades past that and they weren't as crazy so it's okay like yeah it's bad but like the world's not gonna fall into a, a you know the, the whole city's not going to fall into a crevice you might see a, several buildings on fire like we did in minneapolis but we're not going to like it's not all going to crumble into the earth so um travel does that but in a present day sense where i see what's happening in another part not another time it's happening as we speak but it, it helps add some perspective and gratitude holy cow like we lose track of that too in the u.s like there's a cool phrase that says, uh, Peace Corps, nothing makes, I don't remember what it is. The, the, the point of the phrase, though, is that Peace Corps workers become the biggest patriots, right? So Peace Corps workers are known to be, I think, fairly um, idealistic and, and probably liberal that they come out of college and they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to go live in, in this uh, third world country and I'm going to help them in this village. And, uh, and then you realize how, how perhaps intractable but at least stubborn these 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 problems are to their country's uh, development economic development and then they end up just 
maybe pulling their hair out, maybe like, oh, uh, and then they come back to America and they're like, oh, like, thank you for my, my coffee and my, my high-speed internet and my nice computer chair, my desk chair, whatever. And they, uh, so, so yeah, travel can make you, I think, feel pretty grateful for us in the U.S. to come back and at least that we have things that are, uh, I would say wealth wise, we're, we're, we're very lucky, but it also goes the other way. When I, I stayed in a Tanzanian village for about eight months, helping them start a computer program. I mean, they had no technology or, or they had no modern, they had very little modern technology, but man, those were some of the happiest people I've ever seen. And Hi. and that's not a, that's yeah. not an exaggeration. I, no, I'm not I, saying that because I'm trying to like overcompensate, uh, and, 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 you know, in, in some almost like, I don't know. I think people can sometimes overcompensate in some insulting kind of way. Like, like it wasn't that great. You're just saying that because you want to virtue, virtue signal or you want to like, I don't know, something. But but no, they were they were very, very happy people. There was so much laughter. And I realized how little I laugh and how much how little I see laughter just in my day to day. I live in an apartment building. We, you mean you might see two people outside. Maybe it's because we're Minnesotans, too, and we're fairly reserved people. But you're not going to see a lot of just belly laughs. Like that's like, whoa, what's so funny? Like, oh, there must, you know, something must have happened. But you saw that every day in that village. So, in some ways, their 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 wealth was was well beyond ours. Yeah, I mean, on that point, I was in the Peace Corps in Uganda. Um, ah, but, ah, okay, uh, that's right. Your there. your analysis, I think, uh, rings true. And you know, another thing is just like, um, you know there's a lot of children so that definitely uh adds a little brightness i think to a lot of things um did you, you know boise then that slum uh yeah yeah i i do oh wow. uh, i mean i didn't really spend too much time there but um yeah i, I checked it out a little bit um mm. you know but there's there's moments to you know that you know, conversations and, but also there, there's one in particular, you know, I was just kind of exploring on a day to myself to just uh, do whatever I wanted and I was checking things out. And, um, I was walking down this road and there was a carpenter and he was making coffins and I was checking them out. And then I noticed there's, there's a lot of small coffins, a lot of coffins for children. And it was just a heavy, it was sort of like this, this moment where I was seeing something that I had never thought about and it's just right there. And then it's like, Oh wow. Like this is, and then talking to, you know, families and be like, Oh, you know, this person has malaria and then be like, well, that's a huge yeah. deal, you know? And then it's just like, you know, yeah, this person has malaria, you know, people get malaria here all the time. Um, and it's, it, you know, kind of like what you're saying, it's, it's not like minimizing, but it's just like, that's the reality. And when I kind of think of like the work that you're doing currently on the homeless issue is people are, are in the situations that are very extreme and it's very common for them. And then it, it definitely, it's, it shapes your perspective on a sort of, um, how you think about things. And, um, I know we're wrapping up on time here, but I was thinking just sort of, because you have spent so much time thinking about this and, and dealing with people um, in these type of situations, what what do you what would you wish 
could be done sort of on a policy level if you had like your magic wand and say like, we should do this. And then maybe like on a more practical level, if someone, maybe they see some of your videos or maybe they hear this podcast and they're just like, I want, I want to do something, but they don't really know, you know, they probably have some ideas, but what do you think is actually something effective that they can do? Yeah. Your question reminds me of something else we were getting at earlier that we may have left hanging, but you mentioned other people commenting on the videos and that has been a really cool, just to, just to wrap up that point, that has been a very unexpected actually and i don't know why I'm, it's unexpected anymore like this is how social media works things go viral right they people put stuff out there i think the most successful people on social media just take it for granted that yeah you put something out there and it just gets seen like they're not going to question how exactly it all works like this mark guy i mentioned on linkedin he just started posting about it and i don't know like it shows up on a couple people's feed how did my TikToks go viral? I don't know, right? It just shows up on some people's feed. I, I did a TikTok live. I did one TikTok live. I was nervous. And um, I wanted to preview an episode of our homelessness series. So I start I start going live and it's like, I've, I've, I've done Facebook live before and that's like a good, put your, dip your toe in the water. Cause if you go live on your Facebook profile, your personal profile page, it's all friends and family. So it's like, you know, anyone who does watch, it's going to be someone that probably likes you. Um, but on TikTok, I didn't know who would, who would even watch. Uh, I have some followers or subscribers or whatever it's called on TikTok. But, um, you know, there were like 14 people watching and then there were like, you know, 12 and then five and then 20 and then, and then boom, 140, like in an instant, literally an instant, 140. And I'm like, like, so, so apparently TikTok just put it in front of a bunch of people's swipes when they swipe because TikTok is about swiping up mm -hmm. and boom, there's Brandon going live. And they were just, it, it's like flipping through the channels. That's how TikTok is. It's always on. It's flipping through the channels. And they just stopped when they saw me going live. And then I felt this instant pressure because I had a hundred people watching me and uh, whatever. But anyway, um, when, when on TikTok, actually, because of the viral nature of that medium there have been lots of people who've said oh yeah i know that person um tiktok is apparently also good at geographic geotagging or something whatever it's called so like people will say oh i live near there right oh yeah i was i, I drove by there yesterday and, and so that that's that's kind of cool um so on youtube it's to to have had people say oh that's my cousin like for carrie that's that was common for her a west virginia woman who I interviewed who was an addict and I went back four years later with some money because she had her video had earned some money. And I'm like, here's the money your video earned. And she shared her update with her story. And it was that, yeah, I'm still using, but you know, I've got a place to live now and I'm doing a little better. And she did seem to be doing better. And that was good to see. And anyway, uh, her cousin was commenting in the, in, in the comments. Um, so, okay, there's that. Now, um, I think uh, that's that, that's such a hard question. I think in a way it's a really hard question or maybe a really easy question to answer. What, 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 what can I do? Because it gets asked maybe the most common question. 
Uh, and in a way it's, it's really hard because, you know, if you give them a meal or if you give them, um, if you do what most people think to do, which is give them stuff, everyone does that or not everyone, but everyone, that's the first thing everyone thinks of. And a lot of people in Minnesota actually are very giving. Minnesota is a very generous state. Uh, there's a lot of people who, who donate here. So like when the, that camp, the wall that I did the documentary about, uh, blew up and it got really big. It made the news. They had so much stuff at the camp. People were, people were, um, this is something I learned about donating. Don't donate to the campaign that's gone viral. Like that, that, that's like a pet peeve of mine. When a campaign goes viral, like, oh, there's this, there's this little boy who got, who told, who was told his lemonade stand couldn't operate because it was against the rules. What? And then people will rage give. And like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I shouldn't react like that. That's, that's, I, I think that's just not, that's maybe a little bit arrogant or something, but the, the give to the boys is great. But once they've got $10,000, you don't need to, you don't need to give anymore. Um, it's not right. There, there, there's no, then it's just like spending money for them. It's, it's not even like, but people want to join. They want to be part of a bigger cause, right? You want to be part of a popular cause. You want to be part of a popular movement. That's why we wear clothes that are in style. We want to be in style with our donating. So we we want to donate. This happened locally. A, a local restaurant owner, um, I did a video about this. She helped a homeless guy get a job at her restaurant. She owned the restaurant. She's, she's a Latina woman. She had her own little restaurant. Okay. Um, small business owner, but I can hire you, Mr. Mr. Uh, guy from the street to do some dishes. So she took a picture of him from behind when he was just doing dishes. So you see him hunched over the sink doing dishes. And she posts about it on Facebook and it goes viral. And they say, Oh, start a GoFundMe. So she does thousands and thousands of dollars. And, um, at some point, she's like, well, I don't know what to do with this money. I don't know what to do. Um, I have to now I'm suddenly stuck handling all this money for this guy who is not healthy. So, you know, he hasn't he hasn't gotten clean. So what are you gonna do with all this money, right? So um that 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 that, that psychological or that sociological phenomenon of people jumping on a donation bandwagon happens in camps when people just stop by and sometimes it even pisses off the people who live at the camps because they think people are just dropping off their trash. Like, don't just drop off your old clothes here and call it donating. You know, I mean, it, it can feel like an insult. Like, oh, here's my old stuff. Here you go. It's good enough for you. Um, but I don't know. That's 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 the exception, not the rule. The rule was, though, that people would come by with all kinds of stuff. And then they had tons of clothes, tons of canned food, tons of and better too much than not enough. But there was also tons of waste. And so I remember thinking, hey, if you would have given that stuff to another camp, you know, because this, this is the camp that everyone knows about it. It's what, it's what made the news. But there's probably a little camp in your in your suburb or something that you could have or, or a food shelf or a, a, a Salvation Army or, or a, a shelter or, or something um, that you could donate to. Donations are always are always great. Um, I mean, sometimes it gets to be too much in certain circumstances. But um, look, I, I think. While that's the low-hanging fruit answer, I think what's more important than giving someone a meal, because they can probably get that elsewhere. There's, there's soup kitchens and there's, there's food. Um, 
And if you see my series, you'll you'll hear them talk about it. Uh, like I'm never going hungry. They even kind of brag about how much how how good they eat, and that angers some people. Uh, but um, but usually provisions is not the problem. Usually provisions is not the problem. But if you give something to them directly and you say, "I care about you. You're loved." like have a moment with them when you're giving it to them that's the impact that 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 you can have that's the impact that you can have and i know it's not much you might think oh they're going to forget about me and yeah maybe but that's what they've missed from when that's probably what they've missed from when they were young and so to give them just a little bit of that and if you and if everyone did that you know it's one of those things where if everyone did that then i i think it'd make a big difference um, so I guess be kind. It doesn't mean, um, be smart with your kindness, be prudent with your kindness. So like I've seen activists around here, hand out crack pipes. Like they've, they've, they give out crack pipes to the, to the people in the camps. And that's by extension. They think, well, you know, we don't want people to, to, to spread disease. So we're going to give them clean needles because we don't want them to use dirty needles. Okay, well, I mean, we don't want them to use cracked uh, crack pipes. They might cut themselves or they might spread disease through, I don't know if that even works that way, but through saliva, I don't know. Um, or they might have a, or they might use a, a, maybe the theory is that they use a piece that has been tainted with bad drugs and we don't want them using that. So here, let's give them a clean one. But I mean, now you're giving crack pipes to people, right? Like, do you see what you're doing here? This is... I, so so it can go too far off in, in in a certain direction, and I think it does here in Minnesota myself, but or at least in the Twin Cities. But um, so 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 give 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 wisely, um, and I think give from the heart. So if 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 you are in a position to connect with someone, try try to do that. Maybe it's when you're giving them a dollar off of the freeway and they're standing by there with a sign. Maybe it's just. Looking them in the eye, if you see them on a corner and walking up to them and just tell them, you know, you matter, you know, and it, it probably doesn't come through because they, they might hear it from others. They might be, uh, they might be, uh, they might be high, but I think that's, that's why we want to start a support group because we think that, in, you know, that would be offering this in a, in a much more intense, concentrated way where they're there for each other, where there might be a moderator there for the others. Um, that's 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 what's needed ultimately is is that healing um and while you're not going to be able to sit down with them for an hour and do a powerful therapy session and while even one of those isn't going to heal the trauma right that takes many years to get over you can have you can be the nicest person to that person that day and in in, in and when they're putting themselves out there holding up a sign and they, they get honked at they get jeered they get people rolling their eyes. They get people looking away because they don't want to make eye contact. To do the opposite does mean something. It, it, it really does. Um, so that's what I think everyone could do. But be safe. You know, don't be stupid. Don't um, stupid. Don't be foolish. Don't be careless. You know, some people walk into the camps and I've seen situations where people uh, are threatened. Maybe they're robbed. So, you know, but if you, if someone's standing there in a corner with a bunch of cars around, you're probably fine and, and, and approach them with, with a loving heart and 
if you feel so moved to do so, I think that's a that's that's a great thing to offer someone is your is your love. Um, from a big policy perspective, I think um, the best thing I've seen, and I don't know how well it even worked, was uh, what Houston did, and that was about ten, maybe ten years ago. They just they. And this may have unraveled. I haven't followed up on it since. But for a while there, they really did a good job with their homeless issue. They cut it in half um, in a matter of just a few years. And we're, that's, we're talking about thousands of people. You know, that's that's a lot. Um, by building, they, they, they were able to just take all their nonprofits, kind of put them under one umbrella group and say, this is how we're going to do things now. And because when, when you have different nonprofits all doing the same thing, there's a lot of redundancy and it's inefficient. But if you can get it all under one big group, which they did, and uh, then, then, then it streamlined the process of helping and it makes it cheaper to help because you're not all spending money doing the same stuff. And, um, and they use that money then in, in, in an impactful way, which was we're going to build dorms. We're going to build big dorms. Okay. And you're not going to be able to live in that tent city. So they did both, right? They did the provision. They provided housing, which is something people who, who lean left are always talking about. And they uh, were tough on homeless camps, which is something people on the right are often calling for. And to me, it's so simple, Ryan. Like, well, you have to balance the two. Like, this is something else travel has taught me. Like you see the nature of humanity, especially when you leave your country and you can look back on it from afar and then you get to witness a whole new world where you are. You see this, the nature of humanity. And I was struck by this in Tanzania when I saw a political rally in the village I was in. And the rally looked just like one of ours, except they were they were they were all black people and they were speaking another language and they were singing a song I didn't understand. And they were dressed in different clothes. But the superficial things, take them all away. And what you have is a group of people holding up sticks with the head of the candidate. And they're just this joy, this thrill that they felt that this candidate is going to save them. If we only elect this person, we're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, life is probably going to change if you vote for it. But that's the same thing we see in the U.S. Like, is, it, are you, is your life really going to change if you vote in him or her? Um, but the people rally around that person and, and they get all excited. And the two candidates for that particular office were um, like, if you looked at their platforms, the way that they broke down was exactly how we break down in the U.S. with Republicans and Democrats, right? Business, um, uh, like business, uh, tradition. Uh, rural, uh, freedom, you know, lower taxes. And the other side was uh, higher taxes for more social programs, education, healthcare, more urban, more young voters. And it's like, wow, we're just basically laying out the exact two parties, only there they have different names. So I realized kind of the the bifurcation of our of our political nature as 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 as, as animals, um, as ideological creatures. So anyway, I see that with, with homelessness. How should we address it? Well, we basically have two sides that have become polarized, like every other issue we have nowadays, whether it's abortion, gun control, border, whatever. It's the same thing with the homeless issue. And you don't want one side running the show. 
because then it gets too radical. And I think that's what we've seen on the West Coast. Um, you, you, you need a balance. You need the yin and the yang, the masculine, and the feminine, the, the, the left and the right. Um, it's just, it's just the way humans are. I, I've come to see that as in a, in a deep philosophical way of, of how I view humans. And so when it comes to addressing the policy of, of, of homelessness, um, I, I think we need an approach like probably, probably like Houston did, which is we need to have, we need to draw a line. We're not going to allow people to openly shoot up fentanyl in a park with kids, right? We have to, we have to use force. And that just makes people bristle because you're, you know, they, they hate to see cops uh, manhandling a poor homeless person, right? You get that on camera and the cops are always going to be the bad guy because you're, you're abusing a poor homeless person. What are you doing tearing down their tents? That's their only home. How, 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 how could you do that? How heartless are you? But look, without any standards, then people, especially if they're so addicted, they will, they will descend. Like there's no bottom. Like they will, uh, freeze naked outside in 20 below weather. Right. Like they will, they will like think of the worst situation you can involving kids, involving addiction, involving abuse. Involve, and this is where it goes. Like addiction is like, like a demon, uh, in, in, in just how depraved and, and degenerate and, and, and horrible it can, it can turn things into situations, individuals, it, Everyone's got a bottom, they say, but a lot of people don't find it and they die or they, they, they reach new bottoms of depths we didn't think would even be possible. But the drugs are getting worse, too. Right now, there's a new fentanyl out now that they call the gray, I was told just the other day. And it's Narcan resistant, they said. And I don't know if you know much about this whole world, but Narcan is the drug that they're trying to give everyone we need to give people narcan we need to give people narcan because we need them to be ready when there's an overdose near them so we need more people to be narcan trained and narcan is very prevalent and it's used all the time it's probably being used as we speak in your city and mine what, what city are you in san diego oh yeah yeah probably in san diego probably here in the twin cities and it's being used to revive someone who's had an overdose right it saved tons of lives and now there's a new fentanyl apparently that will be resistant to Narcan and people are choosing to use it because the high is better. And fentanyl is already way stronger than heroin, right? So there's no bottom to this. It's, 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 it's insane. Um, and if there's no bottom, you have to create a bottom, right? That's why we have laws, right? Because we, 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 we put a line in the sand because we can't let things get, otherwise things will just get way too horrible. Um, so we need that. We need that line. And then you need to draw it and you need to be firm with it. So we do need, I think, a police presence to. And that's hard to say in the Twin Cities, Ryan, because what did the police do here? They caused the biggest riot and racial reflection uh, of the last 50 years right here in, in, in Minneapolis. So the people hate the cops. So the cops are on, on edge. Like, well, we don't want to, you know, cause another problem. So it's hard. It's a really hard one here in, in the Twin Cities. This is also why you'll hear experts talk about how once it's out of control, the homeless issue, sometimes it's, it's, it almost feels too late. You got you to gotta cap it before it gets out of control. 
Um, and uh, and smaller cities like Austin are trying to trying to contain it before it gets too too much. But um, yeah, I'm rambling. But you, you have to. I, I think the best way to do it is get a bunch of money toward it and build some build some dorms. Say okay, you want your housing? Here's your housing. They they'll complain that it's not nice enough. They'll say these are just dorms. We need our own apartment, with our own our, our own bathroom. Like they'll, they'll say that, but that's impractical probably. So, I I would build dorms, and then I would I would crack down on the uh, on the homeless camps because they're not. Um, they they always lead to violence, sexual assault, overdoses. That's where that's where they always go. Um, or if you're not going to build housing, then the idea of spreading, you know, you kick out a, a camp, they start another one. You kick people out of that camp, they start another one. It is a, it, it does seem like a real, uh, a waste of time and, and police resources. Like, why not just let them all be in one place where people can at least come and help them? So the other idea is to maybe give them some land that you supervise. And it's like, look, if you want to live outside and be in a camp, fine fine but um this is where it's going to be and we're not going to let you put them up wherever you want so there's also i think i think there's some merit to that idea though it, it would be imperfect for sure but i think like you said wave your magic wand it would be to build they would do, do something that i think that houston did build all these dorms get people in housing and these weren't just dorms these were dorms that offered counseling recovery opportunities they didn't have to be sober to get a dorm, um, but they offered all the services that that were there if if you know if you were ready to to to, to get sober, um, and then yeah, use that as a way to help clean up the streets. So and then while there, offer people all the help because we have to fix that inner pain. Like I said, that's that's the root of it. Thanks for sharing your insight on this, um, and you know I just. I really appreciate the work that you've done with the periphery. Uh, so definitely I'm going to link that in the show notes. Is there any, anything else you want people to know about or anywhere you want to send them? I think that's a great start. Um, yeah, I mean, they can Google my name and they can find my other social media. I could even send you them if, if you want to put them in links as well in the, the notes of the, of the show. So if they want to find me on TikTok even or something like that, um, Otherwise, you can always reach out to me, Brandon at the periphery.com. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think there's a potential here. We're, we're sharing a series about the stories of those on the street. I think we could do something like that uh, in other cities. You know, these are powerful stories. They, they, help the, they help the viewer, I think, reflect on their own lives and they motivate them to want to help the people who are struggling in these ways. So I don't know. We'll see where it expands. We'll see how this series goes. And um I'll let you know. I'll let you know. All right. Thanks. It's been great yeah. talking to you. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please give it a five-star review and share it. This really helps out, especially now that the show is so new. So any review has a huge impact.